Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Thank you. President and Mrs. Carter founded the Carter Center 24 years ago, and since then, our programs have helped improve the life of millions of people in more than 65 countries. During those years, we have also put together a group of outstanding experts in the field of health and peace, and that's implemented by a staff of approximately 150 people. Of course, our hardest working volunteers are President and Mrs. Carter. They tirelessly devote endless hours to the activities that the Carter Center is engaged in, whether it's working on resolving some type of conflict or eradicating a disease, or increasing the food production for the poorest nations in the world. The vision that we have here at the Center, which is the guiding light provided by President and Mrs. Carter, is also the source of strength for those of us who work here, as well as a source of strength for the millions of our partners that work with us in the developing nations. So it's with a great deal of admiration that we welcome President Carter tonight. Your first question is, where's Rosalind? <laughs> and I can tell you she's very jealous that I'm sitting at the table all by myself with just one microphone tonight. This is the first time she's ever missed, but she's in Las Vegas. I just came back a few minutes ago. Uh, last Saturday night, our son Jack, who's running for the U.S. Senate in Nevada, had a terrible uh, encounter with uh, colitis, and it debilitated him, and in a, as a matter of fact, for a number of hours, his life was threatened. So Rosa and I went out there to be with him, but I can make a report that he's making full recovery. He's a long-distance runner, a very tough guy, and the doctors there and at uh, Emory University and at CDC have been addressing his uh, symptoms very successfully. I just talked to Rosa a few minutes ago, and she gave me an update on Jack's, uh, on Jack's uh, condition. She'll be back tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Uh, the first thing she reminded me of when I called on the phone a few minutes ago is the most important news in the Carter's family the last uh, 10 days is the birth of our first great-grandchild, our grandson, who came into the world last Saturday. He's, uh, his name is Henry Lewis Carter. Lewis is his uh, mother's uh, family name. Uh, weighed nine pounds, two ounces, 21 inches long. I said, the nurse said 20 and a half, but as a fisherman, uh, I more accurately measured it was 21 inches. So we, uh, sorry, Rosa can't be here, but she authorized me to, to uh, represent her in presenting some update information about the mental health program. I'm gonna go down the list of, uh, of issues concerning uh, peace and health uh, fairly rapidly and then spend uh, what time we have available this evening answering your questions on any 
imaginable subject. I always do this with some trepidation, but I always look forward to it with some degree of, uh, of expectation. Uh, in the first place, we just probably uh, made a major contribution in the most difficult and challenging election that the Carter Center has ever monitored, and that is the Democratic Republic of Congo. As you know, this is a major country within which more than two million people have died in recent years, just the last five or six years in a, in a horrible uh, civil war in, in which neighboring countries have been involved. It was formerly under the uh, control of a dictator Mobutu, and now they have had the first uh, successful phase of a democratic election. The Carter Center was there and played a major role. They'll have a runoff election in, in a few weeks, and the Carter Center will be there as well. Uh, so we're very pleased with what's happened. This was a very, fairly peaceful election. There were some altercations predictably after the election was over between candidates who did best in the east and the western part of this enormous country. But that's typical of what the Carter Center does. We don't avoid elections just because they are controversial and potentially difficult. As a matter of fact, the only countries in which we go to an election is if they can't conduct it honestly and peacefully themselves. If they can do so, there's no need for us to go. So as a matter of fact, all the elections in which we, we've been involved, we have felt that without our presence, it was very doubtful if the election would be honest or uh, without fraud or peaceful. So this was one of the most challenging that we've ever had, and it's still not over. We've also just uh, helped recently with Guyana. Uh, we've been in Guyana, as you know, a small country in the northern coast of uh, South America, uh, just east of uh, Venezuela. Uh, this is a little country that's severely divided, perhaps the most uh, sharply divided country I know of in the world. Uh, it's divided almost 50-50 between Afro-Guyanese. Uh, these came over as uh, originally by the British as uh, slaves, and Indo-Guyanese, who came from India as indentured servants. And the Indo-Guyanese represent about 50%, the Afro-Guyanese about 45%, roughly, and then the indigenous Indians who live in the jungles and now more frequently in the urban areas to make up the other 5%. So it's sharply divided ethnically, politically, and also even as a matter of work habits. For instance, it's not uh, surprising to know that Indo-Guyanese are basically rice farmers, if they are farmers, and the Afro-Guyanese uh, concentrate on growing uh, cane, which is made into sugar and so forth. So we've been there since 1992. All of the elections have been fairly successful. This one was completely peaceful. Uh, the Indo-Guyanese candidate, uh, an incumbent, uh, came through successfully, and we hope that we can continue in the Carter Center's effort to bring the two opposing and sometimes contradictive people together. Rose and I uh, recently were, were in uh, Nicaragua, as some of you may remember, the Carter Center helped to resolve the, the uh, I'd say the Iran-Contra debacle that was inherited by George Bush Sr. from Ronald Reagan. Uh, there was a war still going on when we held the first uh, successful election uh, in uh, Nicaragua. And uh, we stayed there afterwards to negotiate between the losers, the Sandinistas, and the winners of the election, and since then we have uh, been very close to, uh, to Nicaragua. And we'll be there for the general election uh, among uh, six major uh, parties that will take place uh, November the 5th. 
uh, Rose and I went down there to do a preliminary meeting with the leaders of the different parties to make sure that the procedures that will be followed during the election will be uh, honored and respected by all the contending parties. Uh, we have uh, completed now a four-year program on what we call access to information uh, in Jamaica. And this is just one of a number of countries in which we are involved in this crucial uh, element of democracy. We not only help with elections, but we also try to set the groundwork for a sustained increase of uh, confidence by the people in their own government. Uh, unfortunately, in our country too much, and in many Latin American and other countries, particularly new democracies, they don't want outsiders to know what's going on inside the government. So we have been preparing model uh, laws that the governments will consider. We help them get them passed, and then we help them implement the laws to open up the governments for access by individual citizens to what the government is doing in its own deliberations, in the awarding of contracts, sometimes even in the source of campaign contributions. So we've had a very successful program in Jamaica. Uh, when I was down there in, in uh, Nicaragua with Rosen, we also had a meeting with the key leaders of a, a parliament, and they are considering also a, an access to information uh, law to be passed in Jamaica. So we're, this is something, I mean, in Nicaragua. So we're doing this on occasion. <clears throat> the Carter Center for a number of years has been very supportive of the uh, United Nations. Uh, sometimes over the opposition of the U.S. government, which may not surprise many of you, because lately there has been, uh, I think, a very disturbing uh, inclination on the part of our government to bypass to ignore, to derogate, and to minimize the importance of international cooperation and unity in dealing with controversial issues of a political nature, security nature, economic nature, cultural nature. And so we have tried at the Carter Center to be a, an independent voice to promote uh, better elements of uh, governance within the United Nations uh, in issues in which we have an interest. One of the first we began in 1993, a long time ago, we felt that the United Nations was not adequately addressing the subject of human rights. There was no clear single person within the United Nations organization that could speak to condemn human rights abuses and to promote the acceptance of basic standards in all the troubled nations of the world dealing with that very important issue. So we began a crusade the Carter Center did to establish the office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights. At that time, the Secretary General of the United Nations was very strongly opposed, Boutros, Boutros Ghali from uh, Egypt. And I met with Boutros Ghali in, in, uh, in Europe, as a matter of fact, and he said he was, wanted to let me know that even though the Carter Center was supporting it, he was strongly opposed. Well, between him and us, we prevailed. And uh, there is now a very effective uh, High Commissioner on Human Rights. In fact, the, the current incumbent that was here earlier this year should be here again next year to try to strengthen uh, what we call human rights defenders. These are what, what we formerly knew as human rights heroes. Within countries where human rights oppression is the greatest, uh, we try to add our, put our arms around and give publicity and support to those heroes, very courageous people quite often, 
who get out of prison sometimes long enough to come to our meeting. So uh, obviously since the United States government has begun to hurt our reputation as a human rights uh, standard bearer with the torture that we have uh, acknowledged is taking place in uh, Guantanamo and Al-Ghraib and so forth, Al uh, we have tried to, uh, to strengthen the, the weakened uh, strings of protection around human rights defenders in other countries. Many of them look and say, well, if the United States can do this, we'll do it too. And so that's something that we've done with the uh, High Commissioner on Human Rights. More recently, uh, we have dealt with the establishment of an international criminal court which will uh, legitimize and have a permanent body, not just to, to uh, punish oppressive leaders if they perpetrate horrible crimes like genocide and crimes against humanity, but also to have a, an establishment that will prevent those crimes. If the potential perpetrator knows in advance that, that he might be punished along with his top generals and so forth, then we think that's a great deterrent. Uh, to, um, to human rights abuses. More recently, we've helped to establish a new Human Rights Council, which in the office in Geneva will give much greater strength to the protection of human rights. Now to shift uh, very quickly to our health programs. Uh, many of you uh, are very familiar with them. If you've been to some of these uh, conferences in the past, I, I might uh, pause just a moment to brag on the Carter Center a little bit. In, in a few months ago, we received the 2006 uh, Gates Award as an outstanding non-governmental organization in the world in dealing with, with, uh, with improvement of health. There were 60 nominees. The choice was made not by the Gates family but by an independent organization and they chose us and, and we received an award of a million dollars and uh, that was a very uh, beneficial uh, addition to what we're doing with, with our health care program. By the way, I don't know how many of you have been to Ghana, but if you ever go, you should go by a, a remarkable woodworker. I'm a woodworker myself, but there's an there's a, there's a organization there that makes caskets. They make caskets for different people who are famous and can afford to pay the fee of about $700. They, they call for a special casket. If you're a farmer, for instance, uh, they, will, they will make a casket in the shape of a, of a bell pepper or an ear of corn. Or if you are in the transportation industry, they'll make a casket shaped like an automobile or an airplane or a ship, depending on what you favor. Or if you're, in the, uh, if, if you're a fisherman, they'll, they'll carve a particular casket shaped like the kind of fish that, that is your favorite. The last time we were there in, earlier this year, uh, for instance, they had, they had uh, made a casket out of a running shoe because one of the uh, Olympic contenders, long-distance runners, when he dies, he wants to be buried in a running shoe, and, and, the, and his strings are tied. Well, Don Hopkins, who was on the television a while ago, he's in charge of our health programs, we decided we want a casket for the last guinea worm left in the world. And this, this, is, a, uh, this is a casket here for the last guinea worm that we're going to have in the world. You can... I don't know if you, I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but there's a little tiny guinea worm coming out of the top of his foot. Anyway. That, that's, I just thought you might be interested in that. Uh, in that. I don't know how many of you have seen a casket in, in, a, in a, you know, a report from the Carter Center before. That's a casket for the last guinea worm. By the way, our guinea worm program, we've, we've now eliminated uh, more than 99.7% of all the guinea worm cases we've had in the world. Uh, we'll have a... 
We're going to have a, a ceremony in November to, with the ministers of health and maybe some, some prime ministers or presidents to come here from four countries that have just recently had no transmission of guinea worm whatsoever. And uh, those are, are Benin, uh, the Central African Republic, Mauritania, and Uganda. And we just got a report recently that, uh, that Nigeria that started out with 563,000 cases of guinea worm just reported zero cases. But uh, we, don't, we don't give the award until they have a, a full year of, of total absence of the disease. We still have a, a serious problem in Sudan, the southern part of which has been torn by civil war, as you know. We're making progress there, and the other country in which we're having a problem is Ghana. We hope the fact that this casket came from Ghana will help uh, and, and induce the President and all to, to give more attention to that problem. We're also dealing with, uh, as, you, as you know, with, with trachoma. Trachoma is the number one cause of preventable blindness. It's caused by filthy eyes. If you go into a, a country where little children are in a, a Dinka village or Maasai village, from a distance you see the little children, they have a ring of, around their eyes and, then, and it looks like they might be wearing sunglasses or spectacles. When you get close to them, you see that's a ring of flies that are permanently sucking moisture from the eyeball of the little children. And over a period of time, the infection takes place and, uh, and it causes uh, the upper eyelids to turn inward. So every time the, upper eye, the, the eyes blink, the lashes of the upper eye slashes the cornea, and that's what causes blindness. The Carter Centers now have a, has a wide program to uh, control of trachoma and to reduce dramatically the incidence of it. Uh, we have uh, a thing that we, that we, uh, that we use to, uh, to address trachoma. It's, it's called uh, SAFE. First of all, it's simple surgery. That's an S. Uh, you, can, you can cut the upper eyelid so they can come back down into a normal position. And that can be taught to people in the villages that don't have to be medical doctors using a sterilized razor blade or something of that kind. The, the next one uh, is the SA, uh, S antibiotic. Uh, we receive free Zithromax from a major pharmaceutical company for which we're very grateful and we can give a pill that uh, with the antibiotic controls the disease. The next one is face, just washing faces. These people in these troubled African countries have never washed their face. They've never been taught as a child to wash their face. So one of the major programs that we have is teaching people that if they wash their eyes and wash their face, uh, it will dramatically reduce the incidence of trachoma. And now, for instance, uh, Rosa and I and John Hardman and others uh, went to a central part of Ethiopia last year and visited a village and, and, and outside of each latrine that we had taught them how to build as a little uh, bucket or, or sometimes mostly just a big gourd that holds water and we teach the kids to wash their faces. And all over the area that we're treating trachoma, the school teachers report each day the, the percentage of children that now wash their face every morning. So we're making good progress. The, most, the greatest breakthrough, though, has been in the building of latrines. Latrine is just an outdoor toilet. Uh, when I grew up as a boy, we had the only outdoor toilet on our farm. We didn't have running water. And uh, most people just defecated and urinated in the bushes and so forth around the houses, particularly at night if you have to go to the bathroom. You don't want to walk very far. And so people walked in their own excrement, and, and the flies bred. So we have a, a major program in, uh, in Ethiopia and other places to teach people how to, how to make simple retreats, just build a hole in the ground 
and, and have it at the top of it so it, it won't cave in, made out of bricks or a hard clay or sometimes concrete, and build a, a screen around it so that people can go to the bathroom in private. And, and we thought that maybe over a period of a year or two, we'd have uh, maybe 10,000 new latrines built. As a matter of fact, the women adopted this as, as a major women's liberation movement because men can, can urinate, for instance, in the daytime without any embarrassment. But it's completely taboo for a woman to be seen relieving herself. So they either had to do it inside the house or wait until darkness. And so now with the latrines and the screen around, the women see they can urinate during the daytime. So instead of having 10,000 over a long period, we have now finished 200,000 latrines. <laughs> So instead of being, so in Ethiopia and other places, instead of being the author of the Camp David Accords and a former president, I'm the number one latrine builder on earth. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that we do. It improves the environment and it dramatically reduces the incidence of, uh, of flies. We're dealing with onchocerciasis, rubber blindness, another very serious program, as you know. Uh, we have now treated over 75, given over 75 million treatments to people so that they won't uh, go blind from onchocerciasis. This is a free medicine that Merkin Company gives us called Mectazan. And last year we gave over 11 million people Mectazan, which prevents their going blind. Well, that's a very a brief report on, on our uh, physical health programs. Now let me shift to mental health. Rosen could do a much better job if she was here. As you know, Rosen has now become the, the global champion of mental health. And she has dealt with it in two different ways. One is to reduce the stigma that always is attached to anybody in a family that has a mental illness. Maybe you've experienced that in your own family in some way. You just don't want to admit that, that my son or my mother or, or whoever, my husband, has a mental illness. It's concealed, much less than it was before, primarily because of Rosen's work. But she's doing that around the world. So reduce the stigma of mental health is a major step forward. And the other thing is to make sure that people do get adequate care uh, for the treatment of mental illness. Uh, the enormous uh, progress made in the understanding of the human brain has shown that most of the mental illness problems are, are physically caused and, and can be treated with the proper medication. As you know, depression used to be a, a major source of, of suicides and other things. Now there are medicines that can be used for depression. If the person who has depression will admit it and go for treatment. So that's one of the things that Rosen does. She's very, uh, in, one of the major elements in her prevention of stigma is to make sure that the news media uh, understand the facts about mental health. So Rosen has established, as you heard before, journalism fellowships, and I understand there are 10 of those fellows that are here, the new ones that are coming in this year. If you were here, would you stand up for a moment? I'm not sure if they were here. I got here kind of late. Okay, yeah, we do. There they are, okay. We're very grateful for her. If Rosen was here, she'd talk 30 minutes about it. But uh, I'm going to be very brief. Uh, I think we have eight of them tonight from the United States, two from South America, and she's also uh, involved very much in Romania, New Zealand, getting in international support for the elimination of stigma concerning mental illness. By the way, we were very, she's very proud to announce that uh, California passed a bill a year or two ago uh, setting a 1% income tax on all income above $1 million in California. And, and the total receipts last year was $1.1 billion. And it has to be used for mental illness. 
and the prevention of it. And $200 million of that has been set aside for stigma elimination. And Rosa wanted me to inform you about that. This year, the Mental Health Policy Forum will be held in November, as usual. It is, it's, this is something Rosa's done now for more than 15 years. And, and the special uh, emphasis this year will be on, on uh, mental illnesses that derive from severe catastrophes or crises or disasters like Katrina or 9-11. Or and so that will be the special subject for, for this year. I'd like to mention one other thing, the Jimmy Carter uh, President's Library Museum next door has a special display of uh, photographs from, from the White House that are very intriguing. You might want to go by there. The photographer is Diana Walker. And uh, you were reminded at the end of this film, which I saw for the first time tonight, that uh, if you want to find out details about the Carter Center, including anything concerning my, my latest uh, editorials or my latest statements or things that come from Rosen on mental health or updates on any of these things I've just given you, just go to the Carter Center web website. It's www.cartercenter.org, that's it. And the final thing is, I've just finished my 21st book. It'll be on sale in November. Uh, Rosen always likes me to mention that other books are still on sale. And uh, <laughs> this book is about the mental, the mental East. And uh, I think within the book, a clear formula for peace in the Middle East. And I believe the only formula for peace in the Middle East. It's a very complex subject. It's one in which I've been involved even long before I was president. I've had a chance to meet with leaders throughout the Middle East region, uh, and I've done a great assessment. As, a, as you possibly know, uh, the Carter Center has helped to monitor three Palestinian elections, including the one this year. By the way, I, I believe the one that we just did in Guyana is our 65th election. So this book will be out in November. The major thrust is that it, there has to be some approach to the accommodation between Israel and her neighbors based on international law, based on the policies of the United States, based on the international quartet and the so-called roadmap. And, uh, and the United States has to play a major role in bringing the, the disputing parties together. This has not been done, as you know, for the last five years. The United States has made no real effort to orchestrate peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians or her other neighbors. And, and, and this uh, outlines the, the basic premises by which uh, peace can come finally to the Middle East. The book is ded dedicated to my new great-grandson in hopes that uh, at least during his lifetime he'll see complete peace in the Middle East. We all pray it'll be sooner than that. Well, that uh, encompasses my report. And I Well, thanks very much, President Carter. And we have a very good group of questions. All of you have done your homework and passed the cards in, and thank you very much. We will start with, please provide us your assessment of the future of human rights in the world as China and India emerge as world economic powerhouses and as America's leadership evolves. Right now, I'm really concerned about the uh, progress being made in protection of human rights. A as you know, since the founding of our country, uh, human rights has played a major role in our basic moral values. Uh, I made a speech uh, when I was president and, and, and subsequent and said that America didn't invent human rights. Human rights invented America. 
and the last five years, particularly since 9-11, I believe that our leadership in this country has basically abandoned the commitment to raise high the banner of human rights. Not only have there been serious violations of civil liberties at home with uh, spying and, and other things that have not been authorized by the judiciary, uh, monitoring of telephone calls, arrest of people uh, after 9-11 and being held in captivity in secret prisons without access to their families and, and to uh, legal counsel, not being presented with any charges against them. But the same thing has happened in Guantanamo and in Abu Ghraib prison and in other secret prisons about which the public is not even yet informed. And uh, this has brought disgrace on our country and condemnation from major human rights organizations uh, almost unanimously around the world. Uh, we have uh, therefore relinquished the leadership that we uh, ought to have. We have recognized this for the last three or four years. And uh, the High Commission on Human Rights and I have presided over a conference in this very room, as a matter of fact, with about 45 or 50 nations represented where human rights abuses are very serious and persistent, uh, where people are even executed and kept in prison uh, indefinitely uh, because they speak out against the incumbent ruling party who are now trying to uh, do away with any sort of dissenting voices. So I don't feel very good about the human rights uh, prospects right this moment. But I think with the, with the increasing, uh, I would say, strength of the United Nations High Commissioner and with the revised Human Rights Council established in, in Geneva, there is a growing interest in the perpetuation of, uh, of human rights standards as they present exist and to improve them in the future. I don't think there's much doubt that the Carter Center will continue to play, to play a leading role, if not the leading role, uh, in promoting human rights. Not only do we do things that I just described to you, including inviting people to come here from those troubled countries, but we also have at the same conference uh, leaders of the outstanding human rights organizations in the world, Amnesty International, Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and so forth. I need to go down the long list, but uh, they all come to that conference. It's at one time in, in the year when people can, can get together without uh, fear of punishment and, and actually express their views. Each year we have a, a morning session on CNN where some of the key players meet with me and, and the High Commissioner and we answer questions about human rights for an hour and that's, that's telecast all over the world of course. But afterwards, a small group of those uh, human rights heroes or defenders go to Washington and they meet with uh, leaders in the administration in the Defense Department, uh, in the State Department, uh, and with key members of Congress to express directly what's going on in their own countries and how U.S. policies are seriously hurting human rights. So I've over-answered the question, but I'm very concerned about it, but we'll continue to do that. And, and each year when we have the Human Rights Defenders uh, Conference, I hope you'll watch out for it. We expect to have another one uh, late next spring uh, to, to address the same issue. Are you more or less optimistic regarding the state of world affairs since 9-11-2001? Well, I think all of you can think back five years to where you were when you heard about the attacks from the terrorists, which were horrible for us. I had just returned from Mongolia the night before, John and I, uh, and we came, I, I got a few 
I was sleeping in planes. I was on the way to Atlanta to the Carter Center when the Secret Service informed me that a plane had, had struck the towers. I thought it was just a small sporting plane that had inadvertently run into the tower. And then when we got to the Carter Center, we saw the devastation on the TV and watched later uh, with the Defense Department and the plane going down in Pennsylvania. So all of us remember that. The, th the next thing I remember, which I think is, is a matter of gratification, is, is almost unanimous unity in, in the United States. It was almost a, a complete forget, forgetting of uh, partisan divisions or ethical divisions or racial divisions or geographical divisions. America responded with one breath of sorrow and commitment. And, and I think the other thing that we need to remember is the entire world was with us. Every Arab country was with us they were with great sympathy. The French were with us, the, the, all the Europeans, Japan, China, everyone was with us to, to form a, a united effort to combat terrorism on a global basis. And that unity could have prevailed. Uh, unfortunately, after that, uh, we went into Afghanistan, ostensibly to uh, capture the uh, Osama bin Laden and to, uh, and to deal with uh, terrorists there. And we were making good progress. Uh, it was one of the few wars that I approved. I think it was the only thing to do. We were hoping that we could uh, eliminate the Taliban and, 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 and the terrorists in, in uh, Afghanistan, capture Osama bin Laden, and, and have a, a massive martial plan type to rebuild Afghanistan in an enlightened way with, with uh, electricity and water and, and freedom. Uh, in just a few months, however, the administration abandoned Afghanistan to a major degree and, and declared an, uh, mounted an unnecessary and, and ill-advised unjust war in Iraq and shifted the entire emphasis toward Iraq. Lost the support of almost every country on earth in the combat against terrorism. Uh, we have very little support. Now, I noticed a poll that I reported in my latest book uh, in, uh, say, countries like uh, Jordan, who used to be our best friend. Egypt used to be our best friend. Less than 5% of the people in those countries now support, look with favor on the United States. Th this is a devastating setback for dealing with, uh, with terrorism. I, I think our sustained presence in uh, Iraq without any prospect of withdrawal is, is a serious mistake. I think a lot of the violence that's taking place now in Iraq, a lot of it is caused by the fact that American troops are still present and there's no indication from the administration in Washington that we ever intend to withdraw from Iraq. I would like to see the Iraqi government, as shaky as it is, ask the United States to agree to withdraw our troops over a period of a year, not precipitously. I would like to see us orchestrate with United States leadership through the United Nations a major conference of every country that's interested in the future of Iraq uh, in harmony. Uh, the European countries, uh, these, uh, our own country, Japan, all those with money, as well as all the Arab countries, to say, what are we going to do to sustain uh, Iraq and let the people there know that they will have their own affairs to, to, uh, to administer without outside interference, but with full economic, cultural support, and that, uh, American troops will be withdrawn over a period of year. That's what I think needs to be done. I think if that can be done, we can face the future with the threat of terrorism with a great deal more equanimity and assurance that the threats will be reduced and violence will be reduced. I think that's a major factor too that's related to the Mideast peace process not making any progress. That there's a growing dissatisfaction 
a, a growing sense that the American government is not really committed to bringing peace to the Mideast. And, and those things are, are intimately interrelated. I, I do feel, though, a, a sense of optimism in that the American people are, are extremely resilient. And we have proven down through the ages, through the generations, that, that we can correct our own mistakes. And when our government goes off on the wrong path uh, concerning slavery, concerning uh, racial discrimination, uh, with the Joe McCarthy era and so forth, Americans have always rallied eventually, uh, over a long period of time perhaps, and said let's correct our own mistakes and, and restore the basic moral values that have made our country great. I think we'll do that. That's my belief. And, and my hope is that we'll do it without much delay in the future. We are well prepared to proactively prevent epidemics of infectious disease because of our well-coordinated global infrastructure for public health. We are not so well equipped to act to prevent outbreaks of violence. Isn't it time we develop such an infrastructure? Isn't it time we had a Department of Peace? Yeah, I would like very much to see a Department of Peace. As a matter of fact, it used to be that the, that the Department of State was looked upon as the peaceful motivation within our government. And that the Department of Defense was quite often as deeply committed to, to avoiding wars as to getting involved in unnecessary wars. That, those policies have, have been changed, I, I believe, to a major degree uh, in the last five years. The Department of State has been dominated excessively by the uh, offices of the Vice President and the Secretary of Defense. And, uh, and, and we don't really have a, a, an, an internal in, integral part of the government that's, that's uh, devoted to re repairing damage and, and alienation of other countries. I, I really believe that, that Condoleezza Rice is, is trying to do a, a good job in that respect. She, she's moving around the world now. She's talking uh, positively about healing the wounds that have been derived from our ill-advised policies uh, in Iraq and, and concerning human rights and other things. And I think that, that she's really trying to, to, to do right. Uh, we the, the best avenue toward preventing violence and reducing the threat of terrorism is, as I've already said a few minutes ago, in, in restoring the cohesion or unity among the nations of the world. Uh, there needs to be an initiative taken by the United States to reach out to all those that we have alienated and to say, let's don't be arrogant, let's don't depend on preemptive war, that is, we'll go to war with you if, if you dissatisfy us, even if our own security is not directly threatened, but we need to, you to work side by side with us, and we'll listen to your opinions, we'll try to accommodate your particular interest, but we need to have a, a, a world that's united in dealing with terrorism, dealing with violence, as we had, without question, during the few months after 9-11 took place. That, that's not impossible at all, because the rest of the world is eager to see it done. And my hope is that the United States will also join in this effort to restore unity and a common commitment against violence and against terrorism. Thank you. It seems that many countries where you observe elections have a higher voter turnout than we do in the U.S. <laughs> Why do you think that is, and what can be done about the voter apathy in this country? Well, one obvious reason uh, for that is that 
in, in the troubled countries in which we monitor elections, quite often it's the first time they've ever had an opportunity to have a democratic election, as is the case with the Republic of Congo now. Uh, after 40 years, they haven't had an honest election, haven't had any elections. And, and so they respond with great enthusiasm to this uh, first opportunity to have a voice of any kind in the cho choosing of their own leaders. That's obvious. Uh, we also go into countries that have a ruling party in an, an established democracy that, it, that becomes too dominant, so dominant and maybe so corrupt or potentially corrupt that the opposition parties say it's not any need for us to put forward candidates because we know what the outcome of the election is before the vote is taken. And in those cases, quite often, those opposition parties call on the Carter Center to come in and volunteer to be uh, monitors, and we do. But we have to get permission from the ruling party. When the ruling party is reluctant, quite often the, the people of a nation get riled up and they put uh, pressure on the ruling party to agree to let international observers come in. And that's what takes place. And in those cases, of course, with the assurance that you saw on the, on the screen, uh, that uh, they can vote without intimidation, without fear of being punished afterwards, and with some expectation that their vote will be counted accurately, then they do respond overwhelmingly because it's a rare opportunity for them. I think quite often in our own country, although we had a, uh, we had a, a bounce back in 2004 when the election was very close, uh, I think that in our own country, too many people take it for granted. One of the very interesting statistics is that older people are inclined to vote. Uh, there's, there's one statistic that shows that you can take the age, and, and that's just about the percentage of people that are going to vote. Among 20-year-olds, about 20% vote. 30-year-olds, about 30% vote. 40%, 40 years old, 40% vote. 60 years old, 60% vote. I don't know about 80-year-olds, but uh, I guess. <laughs> But, but, but anyway, as people get older, they tend to see that the functions of the government more directly affect their lives. And so that is, is a very great improvement. Also, in our country, we have a very serious impediment to registration. As you know, in our own state of Georgia, uh, recently the, the legislature has passed a law requiring a very restrictive prohibition against people coming to the polls. They have to show uh, an ID card with their photograph on it, and, and many people that don't have uh, a, a driver's license and don't have any kind of ID with their uh, photograph on it and don't ever go on airplanes to travel, these are older people, retired people, very poor people, quite often minorities, don't have a photo ID card. Well, it, it seems obvious to me that one of the motivations for passing that kind of restrictive law in Georgia and other states is to keep those people from voting because quite often they tend to vote Democratic. And uh, there are lawsuits now in Georgia in the state court and also in the federal court to try to prevent that kind of an abusive uh, restriction uh, to be placed on American voters. So, so incumbents in uh, Congress, including the state legislature, quite often do not want to see a whole bunch of new voters registered because they have been elected to office with a certain constituency. And if you start adding a whole bunch of new and unpredictable voters, they may not get reelected. So we have a very restrictive uh, nationwide uh, voting registration procedure. So there are uh, multiple numbers of, of reasons why people don't vote. I would say the other thing is that can we kind of take our government for granted, and, and for many people, not me, uh, folks have said in the past it doesn't make much difference. 
uh, which party wins, you know, my life's going to be the same. I, I believe there's been a stirring of, uh, of doubt about that fact uh, in the last few years. Uh, if you'll pardon my non-political uh, statement. Are Hamas, Hezbollah, and Al-Qaeda indications of a trend toward weaker nation states? If so, what are the implications for U.S. peace and security? Well, they have always been weak nation states, and I, and I think some of the states within which Al-Qaeda has been strongest uh, are still quite strong. I would say, for instance, that Pakistan is a strong state. I would say that uh, Saudi Arabia uh, is a strong state. Jordan is a strong state. Uh, some of them, the terrorists have come from, uh, a few have come from Egypt, most from Saudi Arabia. So those are strong states. The weak state was obviously uh, in Afghanistan. And, and quite often there is a, uh, an alienation of the uh, overwhelming portion of the, pop of the population because of policies that are followed. Uh, an alienation from England and the United States because of uh, Mideast policy, for instance. I, I was just reading, I just got back from, from Las Vegas a few minutes before I came here, but I did glance at the, at the New York Times. I noticed that when Tony Blair went to, uh, uh, went to Lebanon yesterday, uh, most of the leaders refused to speak to him. They condemned him as a murderer because the United States and, and uh, Great Britain were so uh, tardy and reluctant in trying to bring about a ceasefire uh, in the Lebanon, recent Lebanon-Israeli war. Well, when, when, when something like that happens, you have to realize that a lot of, not only Lebanese, but people that, that love the, the Lebanese, it's, it's quite a, a, a multi-religious uh, country, uh, react against us. And it, it tends to stimulate uh, animosities and hatred so deeply that recruiting of, uh, of terrorists is possible. I, I really believe that, I'm, I'm a little bit biased on this subject, as you probably have noticed from my last life, but I, I think that, uh, I think that uh, bringing peace to the Mideast between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, and between Israel and Lebanon, and Israel and Syria, would, would be a, a, a great factor in, in reducing the animosity against our country and the incidents of, uh, of terrorism that exists within the Islamic world. And, and, and any effort made to heal wounds between uh, Christians and, 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 and Muslims, or, and, and including Jews and others, would be a major step in the right direction. Uh, it, it's a very, sometimes very wealthy and influential leaders that, that find their recruitment possible among disaffected people who quite often are, are, are ignorant about the subject but have their, their animosities developed into an acute stage. So I think that's the best way to, to get over the subject of weak states. The weakest state right now is probably Somalia. Uh, and another weak state is, is uh, unfortunately, is still Afghanistan, where, where Mr. Karzai and others, uh, his uh, full authority has been restricted pretty much to Kabul, this, this, the capital, and, and where there's an increasing level of strength by the Taliban in the outlying regions, and as you know, uh, some of the uh, European uh, troops that are there have recently called for additional troops to be sent in just to hold down the level of violence in Afghanistan. So you do have weak states, and, and quite often the headquarters for uh, Al-Qaeda and other 
uh, uh, terrorist organizations find uh, a haven uh, in those weak states? I think that would maybe answer the question. And, and they did go to uh, Afghanistan, uh, Osama bin Laden and, and his cohorts, because the Taliban was there and the state was, the country was weak. Uh, you have written 21 books. What recent book have you enjoyed reading during your rare free time? <laughs> well, usually when I'm writing a book, I, I read books that other people have written about the same subject. Uh, and I choose books that are contrary to, to the way I feel, and also I read a few books, obviously, that, that I feel are, are complementary to what my own basic philosophies are. In, in the last year, I've read uh, probably 10 different books from different perspectives that deal with the Mideast situation. Books highly favorable to the, to, to the Israeli government, uh, books highly favorable to the Palestinian cause, uh, books that deal with the um, conflict, uh, religious and economic and social and, and sometimes even uh, security-wise between the Islamic world and, and the uh, Christian world. So that's the kind of book reading I, I, I do in, uh, as a matter of duty. When I wrote my novel, for instance, on the Revolutionary War a few years ago, uh, The Hornet's Nest, I, I read over 50 books over a period of seven years and studied them and, and made marks in the margins and so forth uh, concerning every aspect of the Revolutionary War. About half the books I read were, about the, from, were written by British officers and enlisted men who went back to Great Britain and wrote their memoirs after the Revolutionary War uh, was over. Uh, when I wrote the book last year on our endangered values, most of my reading then was from current periodicals, things that had been written in the last four or five years because I wanted to uh, point out uh, how our country was departing from, from the basic principles of government that had prevailed over all previous administrations, not just Democratic presidents, but over the policies of George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan uh, and Joe Ford and Richard Nixon and, and Dwight Eisenhower, as well as Democrats, and, and, and how the recent policies established were endangering uh, American values. So that's, that's what, uh, what I've been doing lately. And uh, right now, I, I'm, I'm reading a book called Fiasco. Uh, I started reading it uh, before I went to sleep on the plane on the way back from, uh, from Las Vegas. I hadn't had much sleep the last couple of nights, but Fiasco is a, is a book written by a former Washington uh, Post correspondent about the, uh, what, what, what originated the uh, Iraqi war and what's happened there since. So I, sometimes I read three or four books at once and shift from one to another, which kind of upsets my wife. What kind of parallels, if any, do you see between what you and your administration faced with Iran and the situation between the U.S. and Iran today? Well, we, we didn't see any direct threat for the United States security from, <clears throat> from Iran. As you know, when I became president, uh, the Shah of Iran had been in power through, I was the seventh president, and uh, Iran had been a close ally of ours. Uh, the Shah was trying to modernize Iranian uh, life with uh, equality for women and, and that sort of thing. Uh, however, he was uh, very seriously mistaken about the depth of commitment of the Iranian people to their religion. 
and the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was living in France, began to send in these audio tapes with his uh, sermons calling for the overthrow of the Shah because the Shah had uh, abandoned some of the very important elements of the Islamic faith. And eventually, as you know, the Shah was, was overthrown. After the Shah was forced to leave Iran, though, uh, my government had a very close and good positive relationship with the revolutionary government. Uh, they had their ambassador in Washington. We had our uh, representatives through the, uh, in, in uh, Tehran. We had a full staff of U.S. embassy personnel. And then when the students took over our embassy and captured our embassy personnel, uh, that's what started the deterioration between the United States and Iran. And so we uh, have not had diplomatic relations with Iran since then, although there's an interest section in Washington that I established where the Iranians work with us through the Swiss. And, uh, and there's an interest section in Tehran where, where the Swiss represent American uh, values. But we didn't have any, any threat from Iran. As a matter of fact, now, uh, we don't have uh, any co communication or, co or conversations with the Iranians. Uh, I think this is a very serious problem that has been uh, engendered, another one in the last five years. We, we have a, a policy now quite different from what we've had in history. When we disagree with a country or when we ordain a particular policy for American government, if others won't accept our basic principles, then we won't talk to them at all. We won't let our ambassadors stay there. We withdraw our ambassadors. And we have no communications at all with the government of Iran. And we don't have any communications at all with uh, with the you know, Hezbollah and, and people in, in uh, Lebanon. We don't have any communications now with the government of, uh, of the Palestinians. We don't have any communications, direct con communication with the North Koreans. You know, they're the, tr the trouble spots. And I think we ought to have some uh, concerted effort <clears throat> to communicate with them and say, what are your policies and what can we do to accommodate yours and, and you accommodate ours? This is what we, that's what I did when I was president and what all other presidents have always uh, tried to do. So I, I think that is, is one of the major uh, things that we should do with Iran. I think we ought to, without any prior uh, requirements, that Iran totally abandon its nuclear enrichment program, uh, have conversations with them. The United States has said, we will uh, have conversations with you, but you have to agree with us completely and, uh, and totally abandon your enrichment program. The, the Iranians have the right to enrich uranium under the uh, prevailing treaties that prevail in the world. Uh, there's a strong suspicion, which I certainly don't doubt, that the ultimate goal of the Iranians is to use some of that enriched uranium maybe for weapons purposes. But they certainly have a right to enrich uranium in order to use it for peaceful purposes. We need to accommodate that and then take steps through the international community dealing with Iran. If you will agree to let the international inspectors assure that you don't have high grade, that is weapons grade, uranium enrichment, then we will reduce our embargo against you and have normal trade relationships with you. That, I don't say that this can be successful, but it certainly ought to be attempted. And now a lot of people in the world feel that we are unfair to Iran. I think we ought to make it clear to the rest of the world we are going the second mile to try to induce the Iranians to comply with international standards in not producing weapons-grade uranium. 
but accommodate their own pride and their own interests and their own patriotism, which has now come to a fever pitch. The current administration communicates that war efforts in the Middle East are working to spread democracy in the world. Is it, in your opinion, possible to spread democracy by force? Is it possible to spread democracy at all? And what is the Carterson are doing in this arena? And what can I do to work on the crisis in American democracy? How much time do we have? <laughs> well, I think some people are going to leave and go home to get some sleep before I get through. Well, first of all, I don't believe that you can impose any particular form of government on a reluctant or opposing population. You have to accommodate the uh, sovereignty of individual nations and their particular culture, their particular history, and their particular desire for for their own government and, and a way to choose their leaders. <clears throat> I, I think it's very good that, uh, that the, our leaders have said we want to establish democracy around the world. There's no doubt in my mind that that democratic form of government is the best of all. Whether people in, in a nation or in a state or a county have a right to choose their own leaders, to monitor the performance of our leaders, and to replace them if they don't perform. That's, that seems to me obvious and, and, and not worthy of contradiction. But at the same time, it has to be done with, within the, the countries themselves. Uh, we, can, we cannot impose the American form of democracy on others by force. And when we go into, say, Iraq and, and start first with uh, whatever it is, something and, and all, by, by massive bombing and missile attacks, did not have killed tens of thousands of, of Iraqis and say we're here to impose a peaceful form of democracy on you, I think it's counterproductive at the very beginning. And now uh, that we've been successful in establishing a form of democracy uh, in Iraq, I think we ought to make sure that we soon get out of Iraq and let them manage their own affairs, including uh, their own security, with the full support of the outside world, which I've already answered in a previous question. Uh, we monitored the three elections in, in, among the Palestinians. These were very difficult elections because, as you probably know, the Israelis won't let the Palestinians vote in, in East Jerusalem. There are 200,000 Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem, which by international law is Palestinian territory. And uh, quite often, by different subterfuges, maybe 1,500 or 2,000 out of 200,000 people eventually do vote. But it's despite those kind of restraints and hundreds of roadblocks all over Israel, all over West Bank and Gaza that won't let people move, they've had three very successful elections. They have probably the best election council, a governing council that I've ever seen. There's not been any allegations of, uh, of fraud or, or intimidation or a threat to safety or violence during the election. And all of the results of elections have been highly controversial, particularly this year when Hamas did well, both sides have accepted the results of the election. So they've been very successful elections. But we didn't like the result of the election. So we have cut off, the United States has cut off, along with Israel, all humanitarian aid and other things that went in to support the new government and therefore cut it off from the people themselves. So all of the government employees are without salaries since February. And that's teachers and welfare workers and health workers, policemen. And, and it's a devastating blow 
to the entire economy, and it turns the Palestinian people against us. You know, and Hamas and, and the Fatah party, which is that of, of, of Arafat and Abbas, have just come together now and, and agreed to form a unity government, which implies the recognition of Israel's right to exist within Israel's borders, P67 borders. That's a major step forward. It just happened uh, recently. And so I think that, that democracy can be encouraged, democracy can be established, and we ought to pursue through human rights efforts the increased democratization of countries. Uh, as you probably know, Egypt has had some stirring of democracy. Many of the leaders of the democratic movements have been imprisoned. We've had them here in our conferences that I've already described to you. <clears throat> so democracy is a wonderful opportunity. The Carter Center was the first and only monitors of uh, the first democratic elections in Indonesia ever had uh, a few years ago, now about seven years ago. And we did the same thing five years later. Uh, you saw some Indonesians on the screen earlier. But uh, this is the fourth largest nation on earth. It's by far the largest Islamic nation on earth. This now has a full, unquestionable democracy. I think it's quite interesting that, that the three largest democracies in the world, the largest is India, which is Hindu, right? Mostly. The second largest is Indonesia, which is Muslim. And the third largest is the United States, which is overwhelmingly Christian. So it's not a matter of, of, uh, of religion. It's a matter of the people themselves deciding what kind of government they want and us giving them full support as they make every step, sometimes small, sometimes great, to have democracy. What was your role in negotiating the Taylor-Cox dispute, and where does that stand for Georgia Democratic Party unity? What dispute? The Taylor-Cox. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's kind of a secret, and I didn't know. <laughs> It must have been in the newspaper. Well, I, I, this is a partisan issue. This, uh, as you know, Mark Taylor is a nominee for governor for the Democratic Party, and, and Kathy Cox is our Secretary of State now, and she was the unsuccessful candidate. And, and they had a very, uh, unfortunately, a very negative campaign, which I think worked to the detriment of the Democratic Party. And uh, I went down to Columbus two weeks ago to celebrate the World Championship in uh, Little League Baseball, and I went over and made a speech. I was very proud of them. Uh, Kathy Cox was there along with some of the members of the legislature. And so uh, the next day I got on the phone to try to resolve the differences between uh, the Kathy Cox people and the Mark Taylor people. And I, and I spent about half a day going back and forth between lawyers because unfortunately uh, some of the people uh, down in Savannah had filed a lawsuit against some of Kathy Cox's uh, campaign workers, and they wouldn't withdraw the lawsuit. So I finally uh, helped to negotiate the withdrawal of the lawsuit, and so that now there's no real impediment between the two uh, uh, Democratic candidates. That was, that was my role. I, I tried to remember what I did at Camp David, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's always more difficult on, on the local scene. I don't know what's happened since then, but my hope is that they're not only Democrats, but Republicans and, and between Democrats and Republicans can overcome the, this present extreme embarrassing uh, stigma and handicap of, of negative advertising, which never existed in those ancient days when I was a candidate. Not because of me, not, but when I r ran for president against Gerald Ford and later 
against Ronald Reagan, it was always my distinguished opponent. That's all we ever said. And if we had run a negative TV spot to try to destroy the character of our opponent, it, it would have been suicidal for me. Nowadays, that's gone, and, and, and one of the major factors in the outcome of an election now is who can run the most successful negative and sometimes false advertising against your opponent. And, and the aftermath of that is very bad. Uh, it carries over into the current Congress. Uh, there's practically no public debate on major issues within the U.S. Congress today. When I was there 25 years ago and, and other presidents, uh, the, the Congress would debate for days important issues concerning energy or foreign policy and so forth. They don't do that anymore. None. It's r very rare. Uh, now they go into a Republican caucus, and if a bare majority says the Republicans are going to vote this way, when they get on the floor of the House or Senate, that's the way they have to vote. And the Democrats do the same thing. And nowadays, if you don't vote the way the party has decided, you lose your chairmanship or your place as a senior officer within a committee. So it, it, the, the negative advertising has, has all kinds of negative con con consequences, both during elections and also destroying the, uh, the uh, respect of people for the political process and in the aftermath of the election as well. I, I just hope that the American public will join together in a concerted effort and, and stop supporting uh, the results of those negative advertisements and let the candidates know whenever you see it, we do not like it. I attended a conference at the Carter Center in 1984 called Closing the Gap. It was a conference about health and wellness. Do you think we've come closer to closing that gap, that is, matching resources to lifestyle changes? <clears throat> yeah, I think so. This, this was a time when Dr. William Feige, the former head of CDC, was uh, a leader here. And um, he and, and all the health experts in the world uh, were concerned about this issue. The, the Closing the Gap uh, name for this conference, some of you were here. It was the first major conference we had. Uh, the difference between what we know how to do about our own health and what we actually do. And, and that's a major cause of, 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 of physical and mental afflictions in a developed country like ours. Because the average person in the population because of our education status and because of our wealth and, and, and television and so forth, we know what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't get fat. <laughs> we shouldn't eat too much sugar. We shouldn't eat too much salt. We shouldn't smoke cigarettes. We should take some exercise. We should have regular physical examinations. Uh, men should have the colon inspected. And, and we know what, they, what we're supposed to do, but the fact is that we don't do it. And, and that, and we, we actually quantified the, the, the difference in what we know how to do and what we actually do and, and how much of that causes the, uh, the illnesses and, and, and premature deaths of Americans. And, and so I think the conference has had a, a permanent and very profoundly beneficial impact on American consciousness. And, and now, of course, we're trying to do the same thing in the poorest of countries by going there and, and teaching them the facts. The, the diseases that the Carter Center addresses in, in Africa and, and Latin America and so forth are the ones that, that we don't have in this country. And some of them, we used to have them. We used to have trachoma. When flies were prevalent on my father's farm, 
when we just had an outdoor privy and other people didn't, we had trachoma. People went blind because of trachoma. Now, when, when I visit uh, the poorest people in Plains, Georgia, uh, th there, are, there are people there who are, are desperately ill and lose their arms and legs because of diabetes, because they have improper diet. We only have 600 people that live in Plains and all. And, and uh, the last time I made a visit to, to the poorest people in Plains on behalf of my church, six amp amp double amputees in Plains because of diabetes. Uh, so just a knowledge of what we should do is very important. And I hope that, that we not only will, will take care of our own health by doing what we, what we know is right, but that we'll share that information with people around the world. And, and what makes me so excited about our health programs is that we know these diseases are unnecessary because they've been done away with in the rich countries. So the technique of doing away with them is, is well known. And that includes polio and so forth. We, our, our biggest major project in the immediate future that I didn't mention earlier is malaria. We're gonna work side by side as partners with the government of, uh, of Ethiopia in the next few years and provide uh, impregnated bed nets to every family in Ethiopia threatened with malaria. They have 75 million people. And we believe that over the next five years, we can basically eliminate malaria throughout the country of, of, of Ethiopia. These bed nets cost about $4 and a half a piece. And, and, and the impregnation is, is a pesticide. It doesn't just repel mosquitoes. If the mosquitoes land on the bed net, they, they're killed. So it, it gets rid of mosquitoes. And there's some very careful spraying with DDT on the inside walls of, of houses as well, not outside where it can have adverse affect the environment. But that's the kind of thing that we're doing, and, 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 and we're just too late in doing it. Uh, this is going to be a very costly thing, you know, to buy millions of bed nets at four dollars and a half a piece costs a lot of money. And, and but so we are, we're now in an active role of asking major donors to join us in helping us finance this program. And, and I don't have any doubt that we'll be successful. Those are the kind of things we're doing, and I think that, that closing the gap is a very descriptive phrase that applies to us and people around the world. Why have Israel and Egypt been so successful in maintaining peace between their two countries? Because they have a peace treaty that accommodated the major goals of both countries. This was orchestrated in April of 1979 by me and Bacon and Sadat. And we, and we worked on this with utilizing the basic principles of negotiation or mediation. Every time that, that Israel made a concession, they had to be convinced by me, the mediator, that, that they were going to gain more than they were giving up. And the same with Egypt. And at the end of the whole discussion, it had to be a, what we call a win-win conclusion. Egypt had to be better off because they had the treaty, and Israel had to be better off because uh, they had the treaty. And there were major concessions made on both sides. The major concession that Israel made was, was withdrawing from all Egyptian territory in the Sinai Desert. Uh, region and the major concessions that uh, Egypt made was full diplomatic recognition of Israel with an exchange, exchange of ambassadors and the unlimited right of Israel to use the Suez Canal 
and a promise that the major military force in the Middle East, which was Egypt, would never again fight against Israel. They had been involved in four wars in 25 years. So those are the reasons that the peace has been permanent. And, I, and I'm very proud of that, obviously, but I think also it, it's a clear and, and permanent demonstration that peace between Israel and her neighbors is not impossible. And, and my hope is that we'll soon see uh, more progress made. But as long as the United States government refuses, as they have for the last five years, to attempt a peace agreement, it's not going to happen. And that's one goal that I had when I decided to write my book, uh, which will be published in a few months. It's called Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, which means that we don't want two people to be living in the same territory hating each other. With one dominant, we want both sides to be living in peace with a, a two-state solution, with the Palestinians uh, living in the West Bank in Gaza, the Israelis living in Israel, uh, both of them recognizing the right of the other to be there, not trying to abuse or control the other, or, and, and the total elimination of any sort of terrorism or violence. I don't think that's an impossible dream. And the reason I feel that way is because it has worked between Israel and Egypt. Is the Carter Center working in conjunction with other foundations or governments, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the governments of Canada and Great Britain? We work intimately with them um, as much as possible. And as you probably know, the, the major source of, uh, of non-governmental aid for improving uh, health in, in the third world is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They have a total corpus now that amounts to about 30, almost 30 billion dollars. And their annual contribution just for uh, health care in those areas exceeds the, the budget of the World Health Organization. And we're very eager for them to channel some of those funds through the Carter Center. <laughs> and, and they have done so, and as you know recently, Warren Buffett uh, decided to give his enormous wealth, which is almost equal, about equal to what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is, instead of establishing a separate foundation of his own, uh, he's decided just to contribute his funds through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation because it, it is a highly effective, scientifically oriented organization. They have the finest experts on the subject that they address within the foundation. Uh, they carefully monitor the results of the grants that they make, and they are doing experimental work and, and, and financing it to determine new medicines to be treating tuberculosis and AIDS and malaria and so forth, and, and so we work very closely with them. Uh, when we have a, a major project, uh, for instance, in a country that is of interest to a European nation, or say to Canada or Japan, uh, if we need funding, we go to the Japanese government, we go to the Canadian government, the British government, uh, and to those in the Netherlands and Norway, Sweden, Den Denmark, uh, Germany, Ireland, and we say we're going to be trying in this country to bring about peace or to eliminate disease. Would you like to contribute uh, to the Carter Center in this effort? And, and, and they have been extremely generous to that. We have now Belgium helping us, for instance, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo because they were the former European dominator of Congo, basically lobbied them as well, and didn't leave behind uh, trained people to run it. Now they, they are very eager to see democracy come to the Congo. 
and, and there are non-governmental organizations too that deal in health care and in uh, troubled places like the southern part of Sudan when the war was going on. We probably worked with more than a dozen different health care organizations, non-governmental organizations, because they helped us with Uncle Sakazin's River Blindness and Guinea Worm, and later Trichoma, and we helped them uh, accommodate their own uh, goals as well. So yes, we, we deliberately reach out and it greatly expands the effectiveness of the Carter Center and it makes great allies of ours both in funding and in uh, advice. We also have a very close relationship and have from the very founding of the Carter Center with the Centers for Disease Control. And, and that relationship is, is very strong and current. Dr. Hardman and other representatives of our Carter Center were there last week, uh, strengthening, if ever, the, uh, the ties between the Centers for Disease Control uh, and the Carter Center. So we, we, we multiply greatly our effectiveness by doing this. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for tonight. If you would remain at your seats for a brief announcement after President Carter leaves. But thank you very much, President Carter, for sharing your thoughts and time. With us. has been a podcast from the Carter Center online at cartercenter.org.